Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sackerson. <laughs> and we are Lost Explorers. Excellent. Chris, how are you this evening? David, I'm really well. There's a cool thunder rainstorm happening. And I remembered something uh, just as I was falling asleep the other night that I forgot to mention in our last episode. You were talking about the DNA helix. And there is a story in my high school in the hallway leading to the science classes, there was a floor to ceiling double helix sculpture, little balls around there, right? Well, one morning break, there was a guy named Skipper, really out there, white dude, the only skater skateboard hardcore daredevil white dude accepted into the black set who were my sort of core friends then because they didn't know what to do with him and he found that a liquor store relatively close to the campus made the unfortunate for them mistake of leaving pallets of beer in the alley unsupervised so in those days the original fosters beer long time before i'd ever go to australia big cans we would sneak over there and shotgun those things it's 32 ounces of beer seriously yeah and one morning heading in back to class i was returning from the alley and the shotgunning of the fosters and we had a substitute french teacher who really really looked like she knew french she mm -hmm. was so hot mm -hmm. and she was kind of novel and we knew she wouldn't be around forever and i turned to look at her starting to really feel the beer happening and mm -hmm. I walk straight into that damn DNA helix. I smashed through it without any problem. Mm -hmm. And the balls were bouncing all down the hallway. People were slipping and sliding and Skipper and my friend Lance, Lance is the doctor of love. And Lance goes, I think that you've just created a cosmic event. <laughs> That's and good. It was months and people were still finding those damn little balls. That's hilarious. You mentioned skaters. I was picking up food today. And as I was picking it up, one of the cooks was taking a break from the kitchen and he was standing there in the lobby of the restaurant, the foyer, I guess you call it. And he said, hey, man, I like your style, old school skater, because I got my jeans cuffs rolled up and I got my my skateboard shirt and my long hair and I got my all black, all black everything chucks on. 
And I said, thank you. That's because I am an old school skater. And he said, (laughs) (laughs) there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I wanted to share something with you, not related to what we're talking about, but a friend of mine, his name's Brian, but he goes by the name of Reverend Jangle Bones on the internet. I, I know him from Twitter. You know him from Twitter. All right. You know Rev. He said we were talking about uh, aesthetics and their importance. And he's got this. He I've never heard uh, a kind of neoplatonic idea put this up my alley because he's also an animist. He works with a lot of dirt, ancestor magic. He's my go to guy for what I was showing you, my my hell money and my karmic merit rituals and things like that. He said aesthetics is the materialist way of seeing it. The animist way is that physical expressions just match spiritual ones naturally if there isn't any interference from doubt or conformity. I thought that was a great line. I think that's beautifully said. I think that's absolutely right. In, in, In pure physics terms, as far as I define physics, I think that's very well said. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I there is a resistance veil barrier problem element and I think he's found the right vocabulary for what it is you mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. absolutely um, Kafka you know said you know the, the moment you know you you take you break concentration things start to fade that way. And, you know, I think that the world depends on our belief. William James said that, you know, in in a very encouraging sort of tone. He was saying, look, you know, you do matter, not in this sort of new age liberal sort of way, but we do matter of our energy, our psychomass. I've started using the term psychomass instead of biomass. I think that that we we do bring that. And that is uh, that's a, a very legitimate framework. I can't really. I mean, all of the animist people of the world can't be, you know, entirely <laughs> mistaken about that, you know? No, no. I think that I think that there are some people out there, too, like him and like Gordon White, among others, who are really reinvigorating that those animists ideas and doing some really good book length work about uh, about that. Gordon White's animistic with a Y is a uh, is a really good place to start if anybody who's listening to this hasn't read that already i think a good majority of our listenership at least the ones who come for me uh have probably read that but uh all the the encourage people to share sorry to to share these kind of recommendations don't we david we really want Mm -hmm. uh to shout out to people to to build the reading list to build the 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 mosaic of of influence and possibility that this is exactly how learning used to happen you know it would be through friends recommendations of you got to read this book or you know you go into an old weird record store and you're not going in for the latest you know chart topping record you're going in for that weird dude's recommendation about yeah. something that's going to change your life you know yeah 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 i uh, i had another quote for you here at the top of the show um and this comes from the comment section of freddie deboer's substack now normally comments are not worth reading but i took the plunge today found a good one this is a in response to a blog post that deboer wrote about uh 
the title of it is uh, you know, something like, if we're not going to call it woke, then what are we going to call it, right? And the article is essentially about how there's a trend going on now among uh, socially social justice inclined people to say that, uh, to say, well, what even is woke? You use that word. What is it? Can you define it? And so he, at, at length, he has an eight point blog post defining it. And the whole post is worth reading. But I thought this, uh, this quote, comment from this reader was good too. Here's my current long version. It is a morally absolute political ideology based on quote unquote experienced oppression based primarily on exclusionary group identification, such as race, gender, ability, etc. These precepts are presented as self-righteous demands that must be treated as self-evident, universally true, and mandatory, no matter how internally inconsistent or counterproductive they may be in practice. The promotion of these ideas and any perceived or derived concepts from those ideas supersedes any fundamental individual civil rights, such as freedom of speech, and any expression of contradictory personal, religious, or moral beliefs. Failure to comply is punished by social exclusion and expulsion from employment. thought that was pretty good. That's fantastic. And for listeners who don't have the great pleasure of watching David at the moment, he has uh, found a, a ukulele and is waving it and gesticulating with it <laughs> i didn't even like realize the I was doing that. war god of the you know <laughs> skateboard magic past you know yeah let's go yeah i'm, I'm getting yeah. more i'm doing things with my hands uh it helps me think it gets my gears i going, understand man. It gets my freaking gears going dude um okay so i have my words let's get cracking on our segments here do you have a band and an I have- for us <laughs> I do. It's been a bit of a tense week. So yeah. I've got a tense band. <laughs> They're called Hostile Witness. That's a badass name. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a badass name. Yeah, I, I, I really love that idea. I think that's a very haunting phrase. Ever since I first heard it, I've uh, I've been really excited but this it came together and their album is they're just openly confrontational uh their their approach is kind of south parkian but without any real uh sense of humor they mean what they say and they're angry at everybody but they're also kind of joyful in their collective anger and their album is called listen like the unborn mm. which gets some people freezing up right away they go what does this mean is mm-hmm. going to be about abortion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and one of their singles is called we don't like you it's their first single and <laughs> it's uh it's built around uh real spoken word thing like the work I'm doing with homeless people getting you know random phrases from them but special needs children uh people with Tourette syndrome uh it, it's just this onslaught of a vitriol that is then arranged and synchronized in a way that actually has a kind of beautiful uplifting quality but their main piece which is the truly controversial part is uh, in an old LP terms, it's the whole second side. 
it's a drag queen beauty pageant gone wrong story done like my old bozo under the sea record which would in the bozo was when you hear the bubbles turn the page you know and so there is a, there's a drag queen beauty pageant but the kicker is that the zondi test s z o n d you remember that was a psychologist who had the idea of presenting patients with various faces of people and the face they would choose was often analogous to the psychological problem that they had but in this case all of the people in this pageant this contest are uh sex offenders and mm-hmm. mental health patients and so it's just this immensely sort of antagonistic confrontational piece of vaudeville burlesque mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. i like it i like it i want to see what I was thinking about as you were describing this is I actually would like to see a bit more um, what could be known as reactionary art Um, because I don't think reactionary is a dirty word. I think many people find it to be a a synonym for fascist or uh, Nazi or whatever, but a reactionary is somebody who's just reacting usually in a very strong willed way towards the current paradigm. And I think that what has been so fascinating in my lifetime is watching the the people who were very clearly against the dominant paradigm shift into walking in lockstep with it, but maintaining that same punk energy as though they're not a part of the system they once professed to rage against. And so it would be interesting to me not to get full full on uh, right wing, like, you know, but people who would be interested, like some of our great, uh, you know, provocative writers like Michelle Welbeck and stuff, who are just interested in poking holes in that very specifically, right? Because in your bands, uh, in the second half of their album, you know that it would get people riled up. But again, if you turn it around to these imagined critics and say, well, what exactly about it bothers you? They'd have a tough time. They'd be like, well, why are they, why are they all uh, pedophiles and and mental? Like, why why is that how they've been represented here? Is that what you're saying about? And it's like, well, I don't know. Makes you think, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I I don't see how you dismantle stereotypes without without reference to the stereotypes. Yeah. And and you, if you if you're saying, you know, let's break those down, well, let's subvert the whole process of yeah. typing at all. You know, typing mm-hmm. in any way. And and you only do that by by completely breaking with the linearity of expectation. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you know in advance, well, this is going to be funny. I can I can I can laugh at this. Well, really? OK, that, that sounds like canned laughter to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, everybody, just so that you know, there's something funny coming down the line yeah. and you're allowed to laugh. Don't worry. This is a, a safe space where you can laugh at whatever you want to laugh at. Yeah, man. Some more some more stuff like that. You know, there's this, um, you know, the outside uh, import of Twitter, which I've been off of for almost a month now, and I'm a completely different person. 
there's this outsized belief that, you know, that Twitter has some kind of real power over people's lives. But one, the people who've discovered that that's not true, number one, we live a much more free and interesting life and think and say whatever we want in our own little corners of the internet. Um, but because of that, there's this idea that something like hostile witness wouldn't, like it wouldn't sell. But I think what they're really saying is, oh, that would definitely sell. And we don't want that to, <laughs> we don't want that to happen. I, well, I, I think it would be the the punk music, early hip hop vaudeville version of what South Park has done in a kind of uh, self-consciously juvenile, but very mm-hmm. sharply done sat- satirical humor. And I, I don't, I mean, I think they've been enormously successful. And I think one of the reasons they've been successful is they just have more balls bigger balls than most people because th- there is a market for it quite clearly their their demonstrable success over the decades now shows that there is that meanwhile a lot of insipid uh supposedly edgy comedy has which is really very flabby and self-satisfied has dwindled off you know, or is hanging on in an almost museum sort of sense. Mm-hmm. And you just think, oh, my God, these are mummies. This is you like can't you uh, can't be edgy if you're not going to get in trouble for it. No, you if, can't. if there's no if there's no risk of getting in trouble in real trouble, not people with no power saying mean things to you, but real trouble. Then, you know, when Rage Against the Machine shot their music video for sleep now in the fire and they did it as the uh, as wall street was closing and they set up their their band in front of you know uh like on wall street and started playing their concert and had people come in and start wrecking things and the cops were called it, this was in the late 90s i mean that there was some real risk you could get in trouble doing that right um now that exact same that exact same music video done the exact same way you're not going to get in trouble. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, the idea of getting into trouble sadly now is really just on the petty level of violence, you know, thoughtless violence, not anything uh, that has any, any possible understanding in art, magic, philosophical, cosmological terms. No, no, no. Just burn down a tire dealership, you know? Yep. But here's, on that note, here's my very simple but very direct aphorism of the week. Be yourself and take the consequences. Like that. No invertebrate people here. We're, we're yeah. talking having some spine, some guts, courage, confidence, conviction, and collaborative energy. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And it's good to hear that. There's a reason people go to church to hear the same messages every Sunday. And that's because you need a reminder of stuff. So sometimes those really simple ones can be the most important. Because, you know, I could say I needed to hear that recently, you know, I needed to re up on that. Yeah, don't be don't be spineless. Speak with authority and suffer the consequences. Um, I'd like to reap a little bit more benefits. I'm not going to lie to you, but 
I, I, am, <laughs> I hear that too. I hear that too. But I, I think your message of, of we have to keep encouraging ourselves. And there is a lot to be said for um, taking very simple messages as mantras and and repeating them. I mean, that that strategy works. The question is, what what is the mantra? You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, any technique can be abused. Uh, but I think that we do need to keep reminding ourselves as a pirate radio community that courage is is a good thing you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's not Mm -hmm. let's not lose that you know uh and let's not you know think that uh because someone disagrees with us we're oppressed you know Mm -hmm. um i think we need to get scrappier you know in a backyard you know uh kid duking it out sort of way you know don't don't break out the guns but uh a little bit of conflict is well it's not going to go away so it's about the 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 attitude we bring to it you know absolutely no that's a really good one a really good reminder okay you're ready for your imaginative challenge i am ready. i loved your response last time it was so good for people who missed this you got to go back and listen to it cuz i gave David, the challenge of developing a rebus, a little puzzle, icon, images that then connect to creating a phrase. So this is a variation of this. The idea here is from concept to story. I'm going to give you three different examples, and you're going to use these as models uh, to create your own story that exemplifies and dramatizes and animates the composite principle I'm about to go over. Going back to the 17th century in Europe, the idea of the weapon salve, the powder of sympathy idea, which is actually a green vitriol, uh, that the idea was to treat the sword and not the person wounded. And it was also used as an idea of solving the longitude problem. Uh, There's a a pamphlet from 1687 called Curious Inquiries. The pamphlet theorized that a wounded dog could be put aboard a ship and with a knife used to injure the dog left in the trust of a timekeeper on the shore who would then dip the knife into the powder, the weapon sub, at a predetermined time and cause the creature to yelp, thus giving the captain of the ship an accurate knowledge of the time. This is how pathetic longitude was in the old days. You know, you had to keep in sight of the, of the ball, the time ball, or be near the shore. Second wow. example. Wow. Max Ernst, the surrealist artist, wrote about his father, who was also an artist, One day, his father painted a picture of their yard, and he decided that he didn't like the tree, so he removed the tree from the picture. The next day, the young Max Ernst found that his father was cutting down the tree in the yard, Mm -hmm. and this would escalate. The third example is one of my own. I'm one of my new art uh, projects, one of many, is uh, what I call prepared mirrors. 
where I use the mirrors as the surface for all sorts of things that are stuck to them, that then becomes a sequence, which is the history of TV. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like looking into the progression of television over the years, but also a kind of variation on the Jungian collective unconscious. But you're always in sight because it's a mirror. Okay. Those are three examples the weapons of Max Ernst's father, the picture and the tree in the yard, and my prepared mirrors idea. I'm putting it to you that there is a connection between all three of those, not a one to one to one, but there is a link between them. And you're to develop a scenario, story, premise, whatever you can in our allotted time space that brings that principle to life in a way that we can quite clearly see without referencing any of those. Without referencing them. Okay. Okay. Give me just one moment. So my job here is to develop a short story uh, about that integrates the principle that links the three examples you just you just gave. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I think there's a common principle at work. It's it's fluid and a little bit wriggly. It isn't mm-hmm. exactly the same in each instance, but there's something that brings those together as a triad. And we're looking for your interpretation of what that common ingredient or thematic unity is, and then using that as a springboard for your own completely original riff. Okay. Yep. I can do that. Cool. All right. What would you like to talk about today? Well, I thought we'd move along with our architectural theme because I think it is so rich and multi-layered. But I want to start you off with a very simple quotation from the wonderful Henry Miller. I think a a fabulous figure, uh, sometimes a great writer, but I think a great inspiration for the soul. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a very... uh, strong response to that. Uh, And I think that opens up some other layers of, of what, of how rich an idea, how rich and mysterious the idea of architecture truly is. And it may be one of the, the core words that we really need to know and have an idea about. It may be that significant, Um, but here's the simple quotation. Who would build an invisible cathedral? And I'd like you just to respond to that without any, I don't think that there's any uh, slant or clue that I've given you. Uh, I have uh, definitely some thoughts about that, but I'm interested in what just out of the blue that means to you my first thought would an invisible cathedral okay that's the line somebody who's really cool um my first thought was 
well, a, a ghost. You could have ghosts, spirits. Uh, I also, what came to mind is uh, Giordano Bruno's memory palaces. Um, the When I'm picturing it in my head, though, it's not necessarily in someone's mind. It's uh, there was the artist who did that that famous invisible sculpture that he sold for some incredible amount of money. And the pitch to the, whoever bought the invisible sculpture was that they were buying his explanation of what this invisible sculpture actually looked like. So it seems to me that uh, a storyteller would build an invisible cathedral because you'd need uh, you'd need a translator or an interpreter of the invisible cathedral to people. Uh, and then hopefully those stories would get out into a population through the game of telephone and passing down stories. You'd have this hill that had an invisible cathedral on it and dads could tell their kids about what it looks like. I like that answer. I think that that's certainly what uh, was on Miller's mind. You know, I think he's he was very much thinking of himself as struggling with with trying to make an invisible cathedral visible and more mm. tangible and of, of material significance in the world. But I think that his choice of cathedral is a real clue to the the devotion and the yeah, sacredness, right. uh, which I mean, I think it's a beautiful idea to think of someone like Miller, you know, practicing his art in a sacred magical way when so many people found it utterly profane i mean that's a that's a a, the the whole story of henry miller in one go but here's another sort of if we if we remove cathedral for a moment because cathedral is a beautiful idea and you and i have talked about that it's it's not the only idea i mean there, there are many great temples around the world there are many beautiful examples of that kind of artistry commitment and long-term cultural view there aren't many but there there are examples from from cultures all around the world so we're not over favoring uh, a european uh, frame here if anyone thinks that but if we remove that word and we're in search of some architectural term I want that blank to be filled in because here is my follow-up point. Invisible building has become the entire MO of what passes for our civilization today. We may not have God, gods, angels, demons, and fairies in the same way as people in the past, Although I suggest that we still very much do. But we now unquestionably have bacteria and viruses, systems, protocols, and not only a ghostly body of formal law, but a vast mosaic of customs, values, ideologies, identities, opinions, and arguments. Belief maps. That's my new phrase for this afternoon i've had about five in my thinking belief maps are the inversions of relief maps mm-hmm. which i love and i know that you mm-hmm. love to guess mm-hmm. what relief maps when it gets mm-hmm. to uh so i think that 
we both thought of storytelling in, in Miller's, and I think that uh, Bruno's Memory Palace is very apt. I, I think also Borges uh, writes a lot of stories kind of around that idea. Um, the beautiful invisible thing, it's a, it's a, it's a Japanese idea. You know, there are a lot of really, really cool harmonics with that. But if you remove the word cathedral and that sense of the sacred, the sense of the expert, the grandly achieved, and put in something a little bit crasser, you know, a little bit more down and dirty, I think that really does get to what we have done as a as a species, but certainly in terms of technologized civilization of our time. It's all about creating more and more uh, invisible forces. They're not immaterial. They can be reduced always, almost virtually to, uh, well, not all, but certainly a lot of them are electronic, you know, mm -hmm. and have physics mm -hmm. to them. But, you know, we've just had this run on the banks, uh, the Silicon Valley banks. We're talking about the Oscars still and these glimpses of faces of, you know, sore losers. The entire media presentation on any given day is loaded with invisible force data. It's stuff that is completely... Uh, hallucinated. It's just maybe not as interesting and as satisfying in a soul way and it's just plain beautiful as a cathedral. And I wonder what that, that word is. If we were to spatialize it and put it in an architecture term. Which is kind of to say, in another way, what is the iconic form of architecture at our moment in time where when we've said, you know, I've talked about the problem of disembodiment, of cyber living, virtual living, where we're, we're having difficulty being in the right body. I think I'm somebody else. Maybe I'm a giraffe, you know. So what? Is there a physical, architectural, iconic space today? Because we're all about diversity and inclusion, you know? What is that space? The strip ball. Okay, you still think that's viable. All right. Yeah, I like I like the strip mall. I like... Um... Some hospitals that I've been in recently come to mind. Wow, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> Can I just intervene there and say this is why conversation, not with just oneself, <laughs> is so important because it is so often the incredibly simple things that really do have very deep resonance and meaning. You know, if you think of it like a pond, you can take a really dirty, nasty, little, very basic stone and create some very interesting ripples that are just as interesting as ripples as a, it would have been if you tossed in a pearl, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and you just mm -hmm. mentioned something that I should have thought about. 
hospitals. I absolutely should have thought of that. That is an absolute meeting ground for all people. It is as public as the marketplace. It has been in the news constantly for quite some time. It is a, a battleground of contention in the same way that the classroom and the jail cell or courtroom is in terms of equity and access and result. And I did not think of that. Class division is a big one. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can't, that is, that is an absolute, uh, it's kind of like, you know, getting slapped with a wet flounder, except I enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, I think that was a really, that's a really important uh way to judge what's going on. I mean, you could really, I mean, to the point I I could recommend to one of my students, you know, to do kind of an oral history documentary sort of, you know, diagnostic of our city by visiting four major hospitals. I think that would be a very, uh, you know. Yeah, because a hospital on the south side of Chicago would look different than the hospital here in Oklahoma City. Uh, Yeah, and and within, and the, and, and, the the architectural structural divisions of those hospitals have an enormous amount to say about how we view the body and mm-hmm. the individual bodies but up through those social lenses for instance if you go to the ob gyne ward of a nice clean you know good hospital there is a you know there are co- there are animals on the walls that bright colors it's all cheerful you know it's not like the cancer ward you right, know right. and I don't know if if, if in, in the pregnancy and the and the delivery if you saw any premature babies but you know, that was one of the things that blew me away when I worked in, that was the first thing that in mm-hmm. the burn ward blew me away and the the, pre- the I thought there were like some sort of you know, experiment with like rodents or, you know, maybe monkey. It was, it was very, very weird. But if you go really downtown, wherever that means to you in whatever city, a lot of that joy and color becomes just sort of neutralized. It's, they're just trying to keep things clean and working, you know, effectively, but Mm -hmm. hospital, architecture design mood and vibe is so fundamental to the the whole uh well-being literally of a culture and we have just been through this entire you know covid phase uh i can't work out how I could not have thought of that. I think that's a far more interesting and insightful diagnostic uh, than the strip mall, because I think it does jump or move through the entire spectrum of the socioeconomic group. There's a whole bunch of people who are not going to the strip mall, but they they will pass through the hospital door at some point. So mm-hmm. I think that is, and it's also the obvious, I mean, it's the obvious starting and end point, uh, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For most of us, for, for hopefully I won't die in one, but, you know, fingers but crossed. emblematically it is, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. When Rios gave birth, 
the room they they put us in i will never forget the layout of that room because it was like a very cheap hospital with a bed and a tv and of course all of the ivs and nurses coming and going one of the most uncomfortable couches that i've ever laid on which i wouldn't really get a chance to lay on anyway because she was in labor for 32 hours and you can't you can't sleep you know they'll never let you live it down if you sleep when they're not sleeping during that something very interesting about this purgatorial room however is that the bathroom gave the vibe of a high school bathroom or a prison bathroom, a kind of olive drab cinder block with a, it was extraordinarily cold in the bathroom compared to the rest of the room. And there was such a noticeable change in vibe and mood when I would be helping my wife use the restroom in there, uh, you know, sort of carrying her IV and making sure she was steadied on the, on the toilet and everything like that. There was, uh, so you go from that to that, those are two rooms. They're interconnected in the same larger unit, uh, going downstairs to get food at the, at the hospital cafeteria was just, never mind that the food was terrible, but the, the layout of it was just so not thought out at all, you know? So just, that's a small example of that. I've been to the pediatrician, obviously, to get Gus his shots and checkups and things of that nature. And it's not a hospital per se, but they attempt to liven the place up with movie posters. So he and I have been in the Star Wars room. We've been in the Lion King room. Uh -huh. So that's very interesting. I say all that to say, these are small examples. Uh, you know, I've never been to a, a cancer ward. I've never been to a, a burn ward. Um, I've never been to, uh, I've never been to a morgue. I've never been to uh, any of the real serious places where uh, doctors are diagnosing people with the really bad stuff, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the possibilities with that are are just endless. I've got to tell a couple of stories. One, the hospital that I was an orderly at before I became a psych board orderly, uh, their code name for a morgue run was Ward L, and the deal was you had to have two orderlies, one to check the halls and one to to wheel the gurney, because the idea is you don't want any of the public seeing it. So. There was a special sort of emergency service elevator you were supposed to use, but really you wanted to use one of the main elevators, but just not run into any civilian. And one order would go up and help the nurse wrap the body, usually old people and who are often just as light as birds. But there was this one gal who, who joined us and she was just not a team player. And at that stage, most of us have been working together for a while and we were like a tribal unit, a collective intelligence. And we didn't take kindly to this newcomer. And we, a little hazing was in order. So we <laughs> set up a ward L where she was the order who came up to help and greeted me and, and made sure the elevator was open and empty 
and I had the deceased, the corpse, on the gurney. Mm. And when the doors closed, of course, the corpse sprung to life mm -hmm. because it was one of my friends. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I thought we, we almost had another, a real dead body on our hands. Mm -hmm. She just went completely, I mean, it was, it was one of the most successful uh, pranks I've ever been involved with. And it took, it really skirted that fine line between being very, very funny and very deserved and very good hearted in a kind of twisted way and going too far and mm -hmm. really, you know, and that would have been having to take the consequences, so to speak. The other story, this is, you mentioned how many hours in labor was Rios in 32. Yes. Okay. Well, when my dad stopped being a minister and became a kind of crazy psychologist, he was very into the California sort of group thing. And he was such an innocent that he just, he would bumble into things and not think them through. But he decided at this one cocktail party, and I was still, and we were still up, I was hanging out with my stepbrother. And uh, we were listening from a distance, but my father decided it was time to do a kind of marital game, like a version of, you know, the newlywed game, but for people who'd been married a while, key questions. So he asked this one dude how many hours his wife had been in labor with their last of, of the second of two children. And he did not get the answer right. And the woman went into a slow boil and then boiled right over. And in the living room, cheese fondue started flying. <laughs> it was on young and old. And my father just, you know, he could look so crushed like a, like the Mastiff used to look when someone didn't want to pass. He just couldn't understand how that could have gone wrong. Really badly wrong. And uh, there was this uh, light fixture that was really sort of this space age, like kind of like the DNA thing I ran into. And that woman just took it out. And there was a prong that was sort of the base of it. And she went charging the husband who had to flee out the back door. It was unbelievable. You know, I hear stories all the time uh, from Reddit and places like that. Remember, I brought up the Am I the Asshole uh, uh, subreddit where people will pose their questions they're, they'll give their anecdote and then say, am I the asshole for this? And one that sticks out into my mind was a woman who divorced her husband. So her question is, am I the asshole for getting a divorce? Because my husband went to get dinner with his mom and dad while she was in labor because he was hungry. <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, no, no. I, I couldn't imagine that the type of person who would do such a thing? Actually, I can. There are many of them around here. But uh, yeah, women very rightly, having witnessed childbirth and all of its beauty and mostly horror, um, 
they absolutely, I believe, have a right to throw cheese and <laughs> and go crazy when little details like that are are forgotten because it's um the least you the, the least you could do is just sort of recall it and remember sometimes rios will uh whenever gus is having one of his temper tantrums i'll hear her mutter under her breath she'll say 32 fucking hours 30 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Look, I look, I'm I'm with that. I'm with that. I, I did have a, a mate back in Australia named Hogan, who did once have a very different point of view when his his wife sort of pulled the labor card out of her own accord one yeah, night right, and asked right. him you know, how long. And uh, he looked at me and he goes, oh, well, it's looking about 18 years now. You know, and there is that point too. So, uh, <laughs> looking at about, oh yeah, I would have to duck and cover for that yeah. one. Some, sometimes I do teaser though, and I'll say something to the effect of, uh, you know, I know that what you went through was uh, difficult and painful and uh, just excruciating, but you have to think about what I went through too. I had to stay awake for 32 hours. And I, it never goes, I, I think it's funny in the moment, but it, it doesn't usually go over as well as I, as I picture it going in my mind. No, no, it look, there's just a, a wonderful, uh, you know, classic sort of situation comedy scenario there that it, it's ritualistic going, it's, it's ancient vaudeville. It's ancient mm-hmm. vaudeville. That must have been enacted, you know, a long, long time ago. And mm-hmm. you can just see, you know, a woman with a bear rug and some hair chasing her husband around with a bone. And then the next sounds you hear is they're just humping happily and madly. And that's just that that used to be the way we understood this whole process. And somehow we've we in, in creating all this invisible architecture, I think that we have created endless ways to really get confused. And I wanted you to know that I've been thinking a lot about uh, a comment you made earlier about in regard, we were talking about John Lautner's approach to architecture and his idea of disappearing space. And you introduced the idea of, of focal points in an architectural uh, not just physical architecturals. I think I, I inferred that you you were talking about the whole psychological intake in a kind of Robert Irwin way, so that it might not be right to say windows as being the focal point, more the effect of the mm-hmm. light change across the day, more mm-hmm. of a verb approach to it is what I thought you were, and acknowledging that the human presence is a crucial part of that perspective. These things, you know, aren't focal points unto themselves. Mm-hmm. They're focal points when someone discovers them and you see you're there at different times and you have that time-lapse view of a family or, you know, an individual living and in, in really truly living in 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 a space yeah uh you know experiencing it from different points of view i think that's a an essential thing for us all to work on is to try to see the the focal points these totemic spatial 
moments that are at the intersection between the physical and the immaterial, the visible and the invisible, the architectural and the psychological, because mm -hmm. that's where the architecture really happens. You know, I mean, remember when we were talking about the Robert Irwin uh, body of work in Lawrence Weschler's book in the book club, Weschler sums it up as art is what happens to the viewer. It's that intersection of the two Venn diagrams, the viewer, the audience, the work of art. Of course, it's not inherent in the work of art. It's just on its own. Mm -hmm. It needs a reader, an audience. So the art is <coughs> the moment, the crossover. And we love Venn diagrams. They're just so handy. So I think that where if when we can look at those spaces and going back to another point that we've made, I think one of our diagnostic tools that we can use rather like binoculars or my parabolic mic or, you know, any device that amplifies or, or assists us, we can look to children and animals. I mean, I had an old uh, Aboriginal Australian uh, tell me that if you ever want to know about a room that's strange to you or a porch look at what the dog is doing there if, if the people have a dog and you'll find out something about that space mm. so a direct channeling of this animal perspective not pretending not but but really literally looking at well where did the okay the dog has chose to sit in what in the sun in the porch or is it the shade that tells me something about you know what's going on? What? Why that orientation? Where is the is the dog looking back at the group of people on the porch? Is the dog looking out, protecting the yard still? What's going on? Look at how you know. I walked past a, a kind of a, I guess a I, well it just would be daycare I suppose. It looked a little bit more active than that, as if there was some sort of remedial thing going on. But there were about five or six kids. And you could see everything in those those little bodies. Just, I mean, I was just walking past the window. I didn't want to sort of, you know, stare in. And I, I could just, you can just tell by posture and orientation. You know, it's it's the feng shui idea. It's just the physical becoming metaphysical. Yeah. Just because yeah, yeah. it's there. Yeah. You've just reminded me. I'm very sorry. But I need to go let my dog in for the evening. I, okay, I, there I, you I, go. I left her. I'll be. I'll be back in. No, love yeah. Meanwhile, I don't know if we'll get to this in this episode, but I found in an old notebook, and like all of us who are magically inclined something like finding your own words completely out of any context and yet finding that the words actually create their own context which i think is a kind of an interesting architectural idea i found this scrap of paper in my handwriting which is awful and it says that wild west town looks awfully familiar and it never existed Oh, God, my hands smell terrible. I have to give that dog a bath. Oh, well. 
It's an old dog, man. Yeah, she's old. I was thinking about the verbing of nouns when you were talking about windows and the idea that the window isn't what's important, but the windowing. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. You know, this is such a, I mean, there are so many cool people who we admire greatly, who this is one of their core ideas. I mean, it's neuro-linguistic programming. It's Terrence McKenna. It's uh, Alan Watts. It's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly all of the interesting, uh, even quasi anthropology people, uh, and are I think the best, the best writers certainly. You know, certainly the mm-hmm. best writers of uh, the twentieth century. You know that was yeah. that's the whole perspective shift, and it just is so. And once people get onto it, and I think that one of the ways to think about what you and I are trying to do with this show and and our and the psychic defense manual and just our whole project is to extend that idea of verbing in as many different directions as possible, because Mm -hmm. it applies in so many different ways. Whenever you think you have that under control and down and a closed door, something will spring open and you'll see process. You'll see dynamism. You'll see the oscillation, that term that we use, that, that movement, that, that absolutely vibrating harmonic way between object and process you know and that that energy getting with that well i think for starters that gets you with the best thinking of our time in terms of quantum physics which i think is good i think it gets you in touch with the best ancient thinking about dream and relationship to other worlds whether that be the what was what are what we were before we were born? What happens when we die? Other uh, dimensions. So you got kind of two, you know, things covered. You really do potentially mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. science and magic uh, working on your behalf, so to speak, if you keep alert to that level of oscillation. And I do concede that that does take energy that takes psychic energy. And when we get tired and when we have multiple distractions, uh, it's easy just to, to lose that. And I know a bunch of people, I'm, I'm sure you do too. I hope not as many as I do uh, people who really, I think have the capacity for this. And I see tragically that they've lost it. Um, and I, having said that now, I have to mention that, uh, in two critical instances, I'm thinking of uh, female friends, and I think that this capacity has been, whatever potential it had in the past, has been lost forever. And I think one of the crucial causes has been motherhood. Mm. Interesting. In what way? I'm curious to know, how do you feel that motherhood has affected this capacity? Well, I'll reverse engineer that and say that if I presented uh, one woman, I can talk about this with directly. It's uncomfortable, obviously, and it's very subjective. And it's a, you know, it's an, it's a male opinion. It's not just my opinion, but it's, you know, it's connected with a whole ideological frame, perhaps. But what, the one I can talk to you about this would say... I would be thinking those thoughts. I would be interested in those ideas. I would be engaged 
with the kinds of things that you're talking about. But I just, I'm too, I, I work too hard. I'm too distracted. I'm too engaged with, with family, with my kids. So there would be well, this yeah, the okay. rationale. It would be the rationale yeah, for it. Yeah. And the other side of me, uh, which where I've seen women really struggle in that postpartum uh, postnatal depression phase, I have a lot of support for that. I really believe that is a, a genuine uh, situation of, of devastating darkness for, for many women. And I think there isn't the support and understanding of it. I don't think we have a good physiological understanding. I certainly don't think we have a good psychological understanding of it. Um, it's it's very, very murky. Um, but yeah, I think that there is a kind of traumatic uh, engagement with a process that is just maybe so overwhelming that, uh, well, it just might not be possible for males to understand that. Yeah, no, I 100% think that that's true. I think that will forever remain uh, a great mystery for men. And as men have several mysteries as well that women will never understand, we'll never get it. We'll never understand it. We'll be able to see the shape of it and respond to that shape, but we'll never know the the intricacies of it just because we'll never know what it's like to have a another life grow inside of you and then leave in a particularly violent fashion, by, I might add, right? I mean, there's there's something that is so complex that you, you, you don't know what being punched in the face is like until you've been punched in the face. You can read about it all you want, but yeah, you have to you have to know what that is, and I think that's ten x for for women who've given birth. So, but I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder what her, you know, we're speculating here, but I wonder what her, what she would say to the idea that uh, that thinking along the lines of what we're thinking about it. it it's something you can you can do while you do those other things because that's what I do. I think about those things while I'm performing parental duties. It's what keeps me sane. It's my own little mental playground to mess around in. Well, absolutely, and I, I want to uh, respond quickly to that and then just jump back to something else you said. Uh, but I think that's absolutely the way I see it. I don't accept an either or proposition and the entire program of thought that I'm involved in, in, in my, in the book in progress and really kind of everything that, that you and I are talking about, everything I'm doing in any art form that I have any ability in is focused on breaking up that, that single channel uh, idea and, and, not thinking of it as multitasking, which is still kind of linear, but really having a more fluid and environmental sense of, of what one is doing at any given point. And I think that that is absolutely possible. And one of the, the simple ways which we continue to demonstrate, and you very directly perform, is the imaginative challenge. You know, this is, what, and we, we've got words that you're, you know, meant to be insinuating into the conversation. We're working to share with listeners a methodology of breaking up the linearity. The convenient illusion of linearity dominates the human psyche. 
And we can only break free of that uh, through mechanisms like this little tiny sort of games and tricks and fun things that we do to to break the linear frame and to think more dimensionally to perceive more dimensionally and atmospherically Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. there was something that you said that was important though and it was in regard it was very much in regards to this uh the the trauma of birth giving and right understanding right right life um, growing inside you traumatic uh something sort of ripping its way out of your body uh things that men go through that women might not understand are any of those ringing the bells it was just on that that level i was thinking oh the one thing i did want to i know it wasn't it it wasn't uh wasn't quite that dramatic but the one thing i did want to uh say about this woman uh, female friend in question was that she very much did want to have children that was an absolute uh imperative she'd be quite happy with that word imperative yeah it was not a goal or or a desire or an objective it was it was more intense than that um and I don't think that that there's any way that I can really process that in any sincere uh, textual way as a male, or just as mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I am a male, yeah. so that I, that right. that's my perspective. I can't really, uh, I, I I can't find you know the the analog for that. It would be something different. It would be something. Yeah. Yeah. Really- yeah. Right, 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 right. We have an imperative to have sex, uh, but not to have children necessarily. I never did. Uh, when I found out that Rios was pregnant, I was very excited. Um, I saw it as a great opportunity uh, for my own growth. And I looked forward and continue to enjoy and look forward to having a little guy that I can teach and if we're getting just a little sinister you know kind of mold right like kind of create not a clone but someone in my image there's that element too and i'd be dishonest if i said it didn't exist um but there was never not one point in my life that i thought like i have to have a kid i have to um for rios uh i don't know if she had that necessarily either she kept getting uh, visited by monarch butterflies. Monarch butterflies kept landing on her leg. And the third or fourth time that happened, she had a sort of psychic vision that there was a something that was trying to be born. And so she told me that, and that's when we started trying. And not to get too much into the gory details, but we hit on the first or second try. So that was confirmation to us that something was ready. But I know women, my sister is like this. Um, One of Rios's sisters is like this. They have multiple children and they have the desire to, uh, or imperative, as you said, which imperatives and desires are different in intensity um, to have as many children as possible. So yeah, that, uh, 
that's that's such my mother had that too my mother had that and she was a very extremely good mother so i think that that's good i think that your friend uh if i had to guess is probably a very good mother because mothering comes along with the imperative to have children i don't know very many people who are like i gotta have kids i gotta have kids and then have them and think all right well whatever <laughs> well i i i'm glad you don't know any i i don't personally either but i think that the, that society is a pretty good indicator that there are, there are more people like that than we than we'd want to have uh Tell me something, because something just, you know, we're, we're on this sort of motherhood, sort of birth groove. It occurs to me that when we think of architecture, I think that in, in uh, thematic archetypal terms, we think male. Not just, I don't mean anything like well, the majority of architects have been male or are male. I don't, I'm not, I'm talking about a much bigger sort of sense of, of how architect, and it's not sort of towers and, uh, you know, citadels and things, but just the idea of architecture um, seems, I think, in the public mind, I would suggest conjures up a male value more than, uh, whereas a female value might be agriculture. Okay, mm -hmm. I think that's the that's the analog. And yet, and yet, it's very interesting. And I thought about this a lot when I was doing sensory deprivation tank and flotation tank work, and when I've scuba dived. And when you're in the womb, that is a very very important space. That mm -hmm. is the first architecture that we experience and we experience it purely at that robert Irwinian sort of level of basic survival enjoyment i mean who really knows psychologically to what extent character and deep grammars of being are formed purely physically by the environment and of course, nothing is purely physical, but by the whole sensation of that swimming time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really important architecture there. And yet I, I, I don't think that we would think of, I'll go back. I, I think that architecture seems like at first, you know, at that superficial uh, archetypal level, a male realm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's your response to that? I think that's how I would see it. I've, when I think of architects, I think of men. I, it's interesting that women then are the builders of the builders in a sense, right? They create the things that eventually build. Um, when uh, they're on the one hand, it's, I would say that it's such a physical task to build a building, but it's a very physical task to run a farm too. But I can see in my mind, a woman going about the daily chores, keeping a farm going, you know, milking the cows and harvesting the whatever. But when it comes to Yeah, that's very, very interesting. 
there's something protective about buildings. So maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, well, that's the Bachelard quote we started that the yeah. he in his view, his argument was the first purpose of the house is to shelter daydreaming. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. To provide a kind of material structure in order to to very, very practically protect you from the elements and wild animals. Um, there's something there that I'm moving towards, but I can't quite put my finger on it. At the risk of sounding, well, no, I don't I don't want to go down that route. I'll I'll put it mildly. Uh, the task of building requires a lot of uh, organization of people. Uh, it it does take men to do it, right? And men manage men, and men communicate better with other men than they do across the sexes. So it might just be by virtue of that. If you need strong men to to build structures, it's going to follow that you're not going to put a female in charge of those men to actually get it built. So perhaps over the years, that's just how it all worked out. Um, Because we got a lot of problems now with with women and <laughs> women and men working together. There's two very different styles of working, I think. Fun, excuse me, fundamentally. But um, but I don't really want to get bogged down in the men are from Mars and women are from Venus or the physical attributes. There is something psychically uh, correct about architecture feeling like a male preoccupation, but I don't know what it is yet. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm ready. Are you ready to have something else? Thrown? This, this is, uh, comes from one of my student papers and we've now positioned I didn't know we were going to talk about this exactly, but I've, I've been thinking about this. And I wanted to run it past you just because it's about a topic that I love to hear you rant about. Uh, with this idea of birth and the womb, the protective nature of architecture and that linking back to Gaston Bachelard's quote, which we started the series about, about, the house, its first purpose is to shelter and protect daydreaming. My student has put forward a case that uh, with COVID, the nature of the illness suggested everyone stay at home. There were lockdowns. Therefore, illness was outside the home. So the home becomes this sense of refuge where my student went one step psychologically further along the lines of what we've been talking about and suggested that while the pandemic may have been real absolutely in a a biological sense the psychological fallout or expression not not fallout the immediate expression was a societal-wide desire to retreat to the womb and that the masks become the the token of that and the totem of that that is portable when you go into the world 
So, and I had not seen that. I had not seen the mask as being the extension of that kind of the, um, well, a womb costume, if you like, at least a little womb emblem taken to protect magically out in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it turns out, it, there's, you know, maybe more uh, belief than science in that. Uh, what do you think of that idea? I was pretty pleased with that student for, you know, working that through. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think they hit the nail on the head. I also have never thought of the mask as a portable womb. It makes a ton of sense, though. You can hear your own breathing. I'm sure that a a child hears the mother's lungs contract and expand and hears the heartbeat and all. Because so you can almost imagine a person leaving their house to go get groceries and they have their mask on and they can hear the and maybe maybe they have their headphones in and they have a you know a meditative app that's playing a heartbeat as well so they're taking the womb with them everywhere they go but and but, facial recognition on your phones if that's you know you have to either have that plan or you you won't be recognized rather like being in the womb there are no mirrors there in the womb yeah yeah and i think that um to go back, you said something at the beginning of our conversation about the the architecture now sort of being psychic and uh, created by the different spaces we inhabit on the internet, which sort of create these kind of things in our head. So I love the combination of these two ideas with the mask and the heartbeat sounds, and then whatever you look at on your phone, you we now have the incredible ability to take our wombs with us. And uh, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, the MacGuffin in the book is a videotape. And anybody who watches the videotape becomes catatonic. The idea being that whatever they've just watched on that tape was so great that now nothing else interests them. They've blown their fuse in terms of pleasure. And Wallace never specifically states what's on the tape, but he gives a few hints. And it is a very mothering figure who's whispering something to you. That's the first hint you get, but he can't tell you. Because if he told you, then you too would become catatonic like these people. C spins a 1,500-page brilliant novel out of this, this with you know wheelchair assassins and tennis games called eschaton where you're you're simulating world war three with tennis balls and and the whole court or whatever it's a great book if you haven't read infinite jest but my what i thought when i read that bit towards the end about what was on that tape was that whatever it was it must have simulated being in the womb and so being in the womb allows you to uh go into the state where you don't want to do anything else and i think he was very prescient with this because it's a book about addiction. It's a book about men, very specifically men who are separated from their society. One of them, Don Gately, is a drug addict who works as an orderly in a halfway house, a former drug addict. Um, the, the novel famously ends with a recollection of his about a time that he fell off the wagon and spiraled out. Very effective way to end the book. Uh, the other is Hal Incandenza, who's a semi-autistic but brilliant kid at a boys' school on a tennis scholarship, uh, who just can't connect to anybody, and who begins the novel with having a complete panic attack slash out-of-body experience with the whole prospect 
of his life beginning, right? So you have these, these disconnection, addiction, boyhood to manhood, and all of it in this kaleidoscopic multi-character plot revolves around a tape that makes you catatonic with joy over returning to the womb. So I think that's, I think your student uh, really yeah. nailed that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I had a really, I'm, I'm sure that we've talked about this because I know Infinite Jest is a book that you really, really admire. Uh, and I have very interesting feelings about Wallace. I'm very sorry he's he's gone. Uh, but we talked about this once before. You, this was a more extended uh, description of the book, and I think your take on it is, is brilliant. I wonder how we arrive. I wonder where in the series we uh, we earlier mentioned that. And I love how paths cross backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to remind people of that. It's it is like repeating those those simple phrases that could be really reinforcing. There is this tremendous fear of of repetition, and yet you think about it, well, that is the essence of any understanding, any competence. It's the basis of music. It's the basis of, I mean, repetition is is really, really vital. And, and making peace with it and coming to terms with it and also exploring it. And really, uh, it's like going way, way back to the start of the podcast we uh, early and we, we've we've circled back around to them many times. I'm thinking of Pooh and Piglet <laughs> and where the woozle wasn't uh, or, you know, and they're following these footprints around a thicket. And of course, more woozles appear and the woozles get bigger in their imaginations as they go uh, because they're following their own footprints. And this is this is a great model for you know uh for lost explorers that that yeah you do come upon your own footprints and maybe you mm-hmm. see them from an entirely different perspective uh i got to do that once on uh, a small island and it was perfect the tides were perfect for me to sort of have a walk on this and no one was on the island at all it was very small and i'd see kayak there and when I walked back, I saw my footprints from an entirely different point of view. It was that, you know, that Robinson Crusoe moment. That was that real uh, sudden reflection on reflection and being able to see an entirely different vision of myself that was nonetheless fully integrated. And I think that is a beautiful thing for us, you know, to continue to uh, to aspire to. I love the idea of the catatonia uh, element of of. Well, I think you described that. Where I wonder if that's a motif that appears. If you look at something, you'll either turn to stone or uh, develop this kind of bovine quality. Yeah. That would that would be one. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, oh look, I just got okay. I I was doing a workshop on expectation and how the idea that semantics 
too often precedes and predetermines perception. And there are going to be about 20, uh, 20, between 20 and 30 people in the room. And as I was greeting people coming in and thanking them for being part of the workshop, I took a couple of people off to one side and I'd say to them, look, I, I really, this is a little bit of, of fun and stage magic and just something simple. I really need for you to listen out for this one phrase that I'll call attention to when I was, and then I'd like you to stand up just suddenly without any explanation and say X. And that is the kind of thing that you and I could get up to some real wonderful trouble at places like the Esalen Institute or stuff like that. But you just, sometimes you come out with things and it's just like that. I think, whoa, <laughs> what about man? Oh, dude. Yeah, it's fun stuff. Um, would you like to hear my story? I'm really, really ready. And I, I'm, I'm, I wonder if we could, I, you may have anticipated this. I, I'm not, wouldn't be surprised, but I'm, I'm really hoping for a title here too. Oh, I have one. In fact, Good. it's called, it's called extinguishing the flame. Okay. I like it. <clears throat> so this is, um, this is a riff on, on magical, sigil work effigy work quantum resonance things of that nature okay so i want you to imagine a land a far off land and there is a village that is being harassed by a dragon and i don't want you to think medieval europe i want you to think something much cooler where people are painting their bodies it's a much more sooty dirty tribal type society but there's this troublesome dragon now one day the dragon goes into the village and burns half of it to the ground in the process it kills the king and the king's uh, brother puts himself in charge of the village's burn ward you mentioned burn wards earlier this is what did it for me okay puts them in charge of the burn ward and within that burn ward are several members of his family, uh, his, you know, his cousins, his nieces, his nephews, etc. And he says, we have to fix this. It's not enough to kill the dragon. We have to figure out how to reverse this. These are women and children who've been permanently disfigured by this creature. So we have to figure out how to do this. So they go to the village shaman. And the shaman says... If you can extinguish the dragon's flame, you will reverse their condition. With that knowledge, he now goes into planning mode. How can you extinguish a dragon's flame? His first idea is to create a clay effigy of a warrior and set it at the base of the dragon's cave, wait for it to come out, see an intruder, and eat it. Because as we know, clay acts as an antacid uh, it could perhaps extinguish that flame. So they try that out. The dragon eats the clay. Doesn't work. Still a fire-breathing dragon. So then they travel into the snowy mountains, and they, they find the ice wizard. And they say, oh, great ice wizard, our village has been destroyed by this evil creature. Can you, in some way, shape, or form, without killing this creature, can you extinguish its flame? And the ice wizard 
puts his hands out and ice crystals form on the tips of his fingers. And he says, don't worry, I'll take care of this. So they bring him to the mouth of the cave and the dragon comes out and the ice wizard says, watch this. And he shoots his ice beams into the dragon's mouth and the dragon is completely unfazed and eats the ice wizard. So they're getting desperate. By this point, most of the burn victims have accepted that this is the way they're going to look for most of their lives, but the the brother of the king won't give up. So what he decides to do, and there is a, there is a B scenario for this that I'll tell you after the story is done. What he decides to do is go to the mouth of the cave and put on a Hindu shadow play. He shows the dragon a story of two young boys who grew up. Both of their parents died. They had to scrounge for food. But through the power of their love for each other, one of those boys became the king of a village. And he had just given uh, his wife a child. They were starting a family. And then a dragon came through and burned it all down and killed this guy's brother. And the dragon's heart is so broken by this that he becomes cold. And the flame inside of him extinguishes, thus reversing the burn victim's problems. Now, the, the B scenario in that, which I thought would be like the more funny comical ending, is that somehow the king tricks the dragon into getting a nine to five job and it extinguishes the flame inside of him. <laughs> I thought I'd go for the for the dramatic okay. one in this in this case. Okay. Well, that's a good punchline. I, I, I like the fairy tale without the punch. I think the fairy tale mm -hmm. is just mm -hmm. a beautiful, beautiful story. And it's very interesting. Well before you mentioned the Hindu shadow uh, plot, uh, my this is how the power of words and how stories oscillate out to create a field. Because very early on, I had a sense in my 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 mental theater was a kind of mixture of the leper colony on Molokai and Neolithic northern Thailand, but crunched up against the border of, of Tibet. So as if the mm -hmm. whole continent was, was crunched down. So you had jungle, you know, with immense mountains rising straight from there. And then I flashed to, uh, and I may have mentioned him before, he's a friend in Singapore who runs a, a beautiful children's toy museum. And his prize piece is like a wooden cart that one man could move on wheels between to village to village. And on the sides are these circular holes about the size of a child so a child mm -hmm. could look through mm -hmm. and in the cart what the, what the cart man is moving around is one of the early movie projectors for that area and mm -hmm. would show these old tom and jerry cartoons and the kids of villages would line up and would only get they'd get a, a, their turn watching but then that's cool let someone else yeah that's cool. but in my vision while you're in real time and I'm hearing a kind of music to it, too, a mixture of uh, temple music, gong, and some very sort of Himalayan wind instrument kind of off in the distance. But the cart man in my mind is not showing Tom and Jerry cartoons, but it is a shadow puppet play like Wei Yang, like the Indonesian shadow puppet play. Javanese. 
And the purpose of it is magically to heal deformed children who come to look through the portals. Yeah, that's cool. So that's what's going on. And I think that what these challenges do, I hope that in addition to, I mean, they're always so enjoyable what your responses are. And I think people appreciate that. But they maybe give us a clue and encouragement that we're all doing this potentially all the time. Mm -hmm. And we can have a dimensional layer of activity without it, far from it causing headaches and confusion. It brings more psychic energy to to hand so mm-hmm. our the rooms get bigger you know and the light gets more psychically reinforcing we feel more of the dog and the child within us we feel more in wound but also capable of exploration yeah we're taking absolutely. the portable wound with us in our hearts yeah absolutely well thanks i do think that uh, imaginative challenges that you give me people who listen to it uh whether they listen to it now or years from now I, I did i've never said this on the show before but i think it's important uh there's nothing particularly special uh about the fact that i'm the one who's doing these things you know in my day-to-day life i'm a pretty regular guy got a pretty regular iq but uh, through the process of engaging with uh, story rigorously, I think that I think that anybody could do that if they wanted to. You just come up with stuff. You just. But I I think that you're able to move across dimensions and and genres of imaginative challenge because I'm careful to not give you uh, give you them in sequence in some way that you can kind of predict what it's going to be last episode you were working really visually you know so i think it's that flexibility right. and you know it it really is is it the the simple analogy is is don't sit at your desk all the time get up and move around you know use your body use flexibility flexibility of body becomes flexibility of mind so uh, no, well done. I really enjoyed that. That that gave me a, a very rich psychic experience. Yeah, I thought that was cool that 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 you were on the same page uh, from from an early point there because that's exactly that's exactly what I had and I had in mind too that the dragon wasn't the more Saint George and the dragon type, but a more worm like. Yeah, I I didn't you know? see the angular. I didn't see the yeah. angular sort of European kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, like insignia and and uh, heraldry dragons at all, or any of those, it was much more organically shaped, and that suited the the mood and character of the can, creature too. Can you tell me because I feel like you might know this, but the idea just popped into my head: Is there a good history of dragon mythology where, you know, where? Europeans would have gotten the idea for this kind of beast because there's not a great real creature to put that up against. I know the Bible has references to to beasts and things of that nature, but and dragons, yes, very much. So and that, dragons, yeah, that way, yeah, yeah. But I guess I'm just wondering where the where the hell did that come from. Well, look, I think this is one of our, you know, ongoing thematic interests. We were looking at this uh, 
earlier in the series and certainly all the stuff we were talking about with Charles Fort, I mean, this weird world of, of conceptual monsters and creatures and beings and vast ecosystems and taxonomies of uh, imaginary life forms. I mean, there is no real explanation. There's no consensus agreed upon explanation of where all that comes from. Jung is probably the best, you know, source of, or, and, and he certainly didn't claim to be original in this. He was just noticing something in his view, but how we, how we get that information and, and how that then gets passed down through culture and interpreted um it's it's just plain mysterious and fast i've never thought because when i said saint george the idea just popped into my head wait how did they have come up with something like that i imagine they had uh horses and bears deer but they didn't i mean i'm sure they've seen you know through crusades and travels they've seen things like crocodiles or what have you but the dragon is a really specific what i'm basically saying is that now i think dragons are real well look if anything okay i'm just going to throw out on that note because i think this is just something that um i was just thinking about the the what constitutes a reasonable definition of real for our time? And I just wrote down very, very quickly. Real equals the baseline measure ante minimum threshold for being able to think of something at all. And I think if we start on that, and that is the end of the spectrum, the spectrum then moves towards greater tangibility which mm-hmm. means both susceptibility to, you know, postulates of science on, of any given day and public awareness, you know, mm-hmm. like the number of citations referred to, you know, the number of internet hits sort of, that's the analogy. But yeah, I mean, if you can think about dragon, of course, dragons are real. I mean, I could just see a wonderful commercial of just of you as, you know, the aging skateboarder biker God with his, <laughs> Or ukulele saying dragons are real. (laughs) What's it an ad for? Who gives a shit? That would be it. That would be it. This is what we, you know. This is our first TikTok ad. This is going to be our first TikTok ad. What's the difference between an ad and a short film? Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe all the difference in the world. Dragons are real. And then Lost Explorers with a link at the bottom. Yeah. Well, I mean, God, that would say a lot, I think. I think that's that's certainly one we're going to throw in the mix. We're gonna, I think we should just, yeah, I love that idea. I think that's yeah. a great, great creative idea. I think so, All too. right. Are we ready for the tool of the week? Um, ready. Okay. I'm going to summarize the tool in language, and then I'm just going to backtrack briefly of how I arrived at it and what it might mean for listeners. The principle here is our key life metaphors are right around us, you know, almost by definition, but we forget that. They may, in fact, be so manifest, we don't notice them. Notice that we don't use the word re-notice. You know, 
We mm -hmm. use the word remember, rethink. We never say re-notice. Oh, yeah, wow, my main metaphor is around me, you know. Uh, I mean, we were earlier showing our, our desk magic, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I support that entirely. I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about is intentionally surround yourself with your metaphors, your totems. But I was thinking about, I found myself writing down this phrase, things only exist because they're remembered. And I'm thinking here of memory in a larger, natural, universal sense, the way Rupert Shoulder is not just mm -hmm. personal memory. I, mm -hmm. This is my memory book. I'm trying to break the idea out of memory as a human functionality. You know, it's bigger than that. Things only exist because they're remembered. Well, then, it, you know, I thought, you know, that's a lot like Bishop Barclay. His, his, the summation of his approach to either idealism or immaterialism, you could say, was things only exist if they're perceived. Now, I don't know if, if listeners are familiar with Bishop Barclay, but I think he's one of the most important philosophers. He is very eccentric in a way, uh, but I think he's very important in the history of, of Western philosophy because he's a very strong link to Eastern views. But I only came to, to read him fairly late. And I was born in Berkeley, California. Bishop, We say Bishop Berkeley, but really it's Berkeley. That's mm -hmm. who Berkeley, the city of Berkeley is named after. And when I read him, I... He, you know, writing in the 17th century, uh, he is a bishop and he is a very, very eccentric, idiosyncratic philosopher with a very particular point of view. And for his, at that historic stage, a remarkably clear writing style, remarkably clear. I recommend people check that out. He was, the, the summarizer here says he was a brilliant critic of his predecessors, particularly Descartes, Malbranche, and Locke. So he seems like he's a Lost Explorer approved. Totally. Thank you. For exactly right. He's, <clears throat> he is out there putting forward a view that I think is just right after our own hearts completely. And I was amazed at, at how long it took me in my life to discover this figure, you know, when I'm, I looked at that last name, you know, whenever my, my idea of my birth comes up to tie back into our, our birth theme. And so I encourage people to really re-examine some of these enormously obvious things in our lives that may be gigantic clues to things. I, I'm grateful that I really did discover his work because I have couple more. He also wrote a fabulous book called On the Virtues of Tar Water, Drinking Pine Resin in Water. That's and real, though. That's a real holistic. I was reading about this the other day. It's so crazy you brought that up. There are immense benefits to boiling pine tea, pine needles in tea. It's you a know who you are sounding exactly like Cadwallager Colden. Isn't that the best name you've ever <laughs> That's heard? pretty cool. It's like a Thomas Pynchon name. Totally. He was the 17th century doctor who really broke 
tar mm-hmm. water into the mainstream. And that was what gave Barker the idea to write about it. He became absolutely, uh, uh, well, an apostle for it, an apostle for it. And it's also, tar water is also mentioned in Great Expectations. And I hadn't really under, I, you know, you, th- you hear tar water <clears throat> maybe connected more with sailing you know, and nautical stuff, but not yeah. so, you're right. It's, it was holistic medicine back, you know, back then. Uh, but the, the other thing that um, really came through to me when I did read Bishop Barker's main work was I realized that it's a beautiful argument for the necessity of God. Mm-hmm. It's very, very subtle. But I mean, here he is, you'd expect maybe that in a way. But it's done without any without any theology behind it. It's a completely spiritual point of view about kind of William James rather than William Blake version of, of what divinity and and it's it's not that far removed from a Terence McKenna point of view, and it is also very very subtle. Your your average like college philosophy student isn't going to pick up on that, but I think you would. I think your reading of it would be exactly as mine was. And the the counterpoint to this is someone that we've mentioned on the show several times, and we'll probably you know harken back to but darwin mm-hmm. in the same way that Darwin, people who really get back to the original source material of on the origin of species will see very clearly that the principal second text not a subtext it's more pronounced than that is a construction of the human known universe in terms of the elimination of God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are two counterpoints. And I would suggest that, that my final sort of take was, was that Bishop Barclay is a kind of Terence McKenna figure. And Darwin might be, you know, has become a kind of Richard Dawkins figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it, it's, it's all the difference in the world. It's between the sentient organic living universe, which many of our heroes uh, express and and delve into versus uh, not even a wondrous machine, you know, not even a wondrous sort of steampunk immensely. You know, there are a whole bunch of really cool people who who really do think of, of the universe and existence in terms of mechanics. But by <laughs> God, their mechanics are really interesting. You know, right, right, you know, right. They're really, really baroque and exotic, and they 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 swirl together into kind of uh, you know, they become organic. And I, I think we have a lot of time for those. It's it's that middle ground, that middle ground of kind of auto autopilot, you know. And that that is where uh, that's the dead zone, you know. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. Well, here's here's my tip. And um, well, one little one which we've we've harped 
Don, and we'll continue to. Uh, you know, it's worth investigating phrases. This is a language lover's one. Um, but I found myself thinking about uh, so-and-so was, a, you know, an intellect of the first water. I use that expression, the first water, a lot. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm not sure. What the hell? And I, I, I looked it up. And do you know what it comes from? It's very, it's got a very beautiful, simple thing. You'll, you'll never forget it. It, it comes from uh, the way, the means of, of grading diamonds. The, the wateriness of a diamond is its clarity, its beauty, its worth. So, of the first water is of the finest quality. So, it's a diamond uh, jewelry. Term. That's a little phrase that I'd like to put into my daily vo vocabulary. Yeah, telling people, it, "Oh, this is of the first water." It's just, it's just putting shit like that into the normal way that we talk is uh, is so cool. Exactly, especially in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, because yeah, people will start to think, "Is that an Oklahomaism?" Is <laughs> and with the biker aging skateboarder Messiah look. Mm -hmm. It'll it'll doubly confuse them, and people will start to go. Well, he says that I'm going to start saying that. Yeah, maybe there's something to it. Yeah, the first water. Okay, so I I've been trying this experiment for some time. I don't think I mentioned this before, but I've been I, I've been doing this with classes and uh, and oftentimes just with individuals where I feel comfortable enough. I'm you know if I'm not going to scare them, but you know me, I'm, I'm always doing some, some kind of market research, but this can be done with a photograph. It can be done with an instant photo, like a Polaroid. It can be done with an illustration, cartoon, any any image that you like, but you hand it to someone or a group of people. And you say, what's wrong with this picture? Okay, here's the thing. You can do this with one person. You can do this with a group of five people. You can do this with copies, you know, up to uh, 50 people, let's say. And one thing happens. What do you think that is? Do they come to a consensus about what's wrong with it? Well, in a sense, they come to a very, very important immediate consensus of accepting that there is something. Yeah, wrong. yeah. That, That's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that they, yeah, whether they, it's true or not, they they all agree, like, oh yeah, what whatever, whatever the alpha decides is is wrong with it. They they're like, oh right, of course, yeah. Exactly. We were talking in last episode, and I won't dig too deep into this about certain kinds of bodily insertions and <laughs> yeah. what this shows is that people will happily just get that rhetoric inserted something's wrong mm -hmm. without any regard how what would they gauge that against mm -hmm. what image do they have in their mind that they are comparing it to there mm -hmm. is so much perceptual strangeness to this and this is where expectation entirely determines perception and mm -hmm. the the expectations are based on the flimsiest of conceptual scaffolding 
and you think, oh, don't climb up on that junk. No, don't do it. There's nothing there. It's it's truly an invisible jungle gym scaffolding that people are climbing up on minute to minute to minute. And it's it's very, very peculiar. And some people really have trouble with this. When we have the debrief discussion about this, it it really because there's a lot of backtracking where people go, well, of course, I, I didn't, I, you, you know, and they're doing it with COVID right now. As more and more information comes out about masks not working and the vaccine not working, and you know maybe people overreacted a little bit. I'm not seeing a uh, you know mea culpa style. Oh, I was kind of wrong about that. Kind of they're like, well, I mean, I kind of you know I was just trying to be as careful as possible. Wouldn't it be refreshing if just someone said, you know, damn me, I just I I I got I that one wrong. Well-intentioned. I really thought I had my shit together on this and I got it wrong. I whiffed it. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, that's, I've been, I've been dying to see that. I've been waiting to to see it happen. And I put little things out on Instagram because I'm an, an agitator and an instigator, but every time a new thing will come out, you know, big studies, big, you know, uh, uh, what was her, uh, Dr. Wen, um, the the woman who was proposing all of the you know the most draconian lockdowns and vaccine mandates has has been going on CNN and leaving people like Don Lemon completely flustered. But she she will actually say, yeah, we got that wrong. It's not right. Masks don't work. Vaccines don't work. Uh, so when I see someone like her, who to her credit has, uh, uh, I don't know if integrity is the right word. Uh, because I'm not entirely convinced that she didn't already know these things that she's putting out there. Um, but when you see that, you think all of a sudden you're going to see a swath of, there are still people out there who think that ivermectin is horse dewormer instead of a, a drug that's been administered to over a billion people and won the Nobel prize for its health benefits. And that is safer for you to take than aspirin. Um, so, you know, people are just so funny. And I think that your example of the what is wrong with this, people's ability to just rationalize. And I think, you know, talking about what separates a person like me or a person like you is don't you get a kick out of being wrong when you find out that you're totally and completely wrong about something? Yes, I just do. Like, you just, yes, like, I for do. For me, me, I laugh. I say, holy shit. I mess that one i i whiffed it yeah isn't that and, it, and there's a, a real sense of joy in being wrong because i've learned something it's exciting to me and that is i will say something that makes the two of us and probably our listeners a bit unique in the human race because people can't do that that's not easy for people to do to just be able to have a sense of humor about it and say oh whoop, wrong about that I would, I'll just describe briefly my experience with that possibility, because I think it is one of the greatest learning experiences that one can have, not without some discomfort in the moment, and sometimes some real, you know, aftershocks. I find the hardest uh, thing to have gotten wrong is people. 
I think that's very difficult. If you have a yeah. sense of betrayal or disappointment, or you really have made a, a, a character misjudgment, I find that very, very disturbing and confrontational and something that, that lingers with me for some time. But when I have simply made a mistake or put a, a, a framework onto something that proves to be completely uh, inappropriate for that. I find that often hilarious. And I think that is a great instructive moment. And if you think about it for a moment, those two possibilities, I would suggest are emblematic of the two great dramatic streams, real uh, tragedy and comedy. You know, I think that's kind of how those those work in a way. But, yeah, there are some people who just simply can't deal with that. And the rationalization machine kicks in so fast, they never have time to adjust and actually learn anything from it. The experience. Who cares if you're wrong? You're going to die one day. It doesn't matter. I mean, it just it doesn't. Now, I will argue. If I think that I'm right about something, I'm not a pushover. I don't say, oh, you're probably wrong about that. But if it comes down, let's say the COVID thing, if 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 hardcore, incontrovertible evidence came down that masks were effective or the vaccines worked or, you know, COVID really was the threat that it was made out to be, um, I'd eat crow, you know, and you eat crow quickly. If you're going to eat crow, you don't do it a feather at a time just eat the whole thing. And then you, you laugh about it and you move on. But uh, yeah, people are so concerned with being right, but I don't think you can be, if you're really into, uh, you know, pataphysics and Fordian phenomena and stuff like that, you, you have to hold all those things in a Robert Anton Wilson reality tunnel uh, lightness or else, you know, you go crazy. You like QAnon is a good example, I think, of people who are perhaps more like us in their willingness to entertain crazy things, but who applied that that fatal mistake of holding on to those things tightly instead of treating it more like a game. So that when something like QAnon came out as completely fake and absurd or flat earth or something like that, I can I could go to a flat earth convention. You and I could go and we would have a freaking ball, man. We'd have so much fun at a flat earth convention. Uh, But, you know, we're having fun. And maybe when we're there, we're having a discussion with with a flat earth or a hollow earth, which, by the way, did you know that the flat earth and the hollow earth people do not get along at all? Obviously, I'd love to hear you say that because that yeah. I, I didn't know that in that sense, but I it 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 makes perfect sense. Yeah, obviously they have a fundamental difference. How could the earth yeah. be hollow if it's flat? Um, but uh, I guess the point that I'm trying to get to is that there, if I had my own tip and tool, is that just get a little bit of enjoyment out of being wrong. Like once you, once you dissociate, like my ego at the moment is tied to my artistic output, my family, uh, my ability to make money, things like that. But my ego has absolutely no grounding on how I look, uh, how, or, or whether I'm right or wrong. Right. Which are two things that really concern me when I was a teenager, 
my contention is that people who are really concerned uh, with like getting their feelings hurt because somebody has attacked some part of their physical appearance or their mental capacity are still in high school because eventually you just, my, my mama is a perfect example of this. She, you know, she grew up on a farm. Her dad was a sharecropper, Louisiana Cajuns and growing up, she always just like the, the thing that made her laugh the most was when somebody made fun of her or she made fun of herself because she was overweight and, you know, she had a very Dolly Parton sense of humor about kind of being a hillbilly and uh, maybe not being the smartest or the sharpest tool in the shed, even though she was, she was smarter than all of us, but she played dumb well. Um, I, I absorbed that and it's been a real benefit to me. Like, just don't take it so seriously. Like, you can be wrong. It's fine. Wow. I just had you in this magical sort of neuro-linguistic programming sense, I had this whole scenario while listening to you. And I was thinking of these, you know, Louisiana sort of Cajun, very honest, genuine sort of, you know, this is a very sincere sort of grounded sort of person. And then you could think of that from like the really snarky Freudian point of view of this whole other thing of, of, you know, and you could have this character presented in two different ways, two different interior monologues. Mm. And the audience would have to, and of course, with more contemporary, we would be leaning towards that snarky 40. This isn't a real genuine sort of person. This person isn't that naturally grounded. And mm-hmm. They're, mm-hmm. they're doing this for all sorts of very perverse neurotic reasons. And I think that would be fabulous to watch. Mm-hmm. But I... Mm-hmm. I, I encourage your, you know, tools and tips from you too. I think that was a really great performance of, of uh, I'm there. I, I'm there with that. I think that was. Also, also, I had a dream today. Uh, were you done? Were, were, can we move on to dreams? Is yeah, that okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, because you're going to love this. I sometimes parents do this thing where your child is going down for a nap and the only way to get him to go to sleep is to pretend that you're sleeping too. So you say night, night, and then you curl up, put your head on the pillow. Sometimes I even fake snore to get him to really think I'm out. Well, today as happens, sometimes I actually fell asleep doing this. (laughs) I actually took a nap. And when I napped, I was instantly dropped into cyberpunk dream world. Complete cyberpunk. I was on top of these built Blade Runner buildings with fog, you know, and, uh, you know, a sort of Coca-Cola ad with an Asian woman playing on one of the distant skyscrapers. But I could jump from building to building and I was a cat burglar. I was a thief. And I dropped in through the and got to this apartment and turned on my little flashlight mounted there. And I could see all of these uh, you know, takeout containers and beer bottles. It was just a complete mess. And I thought, oh, this sucks because I'm trying to make noise and I have these, these obstacles in my way, right? So over time, I decide, okay, there's nothing of value in this, in this apartment, so I'll leave. So I sneak out a window. And when I do so, I set the alarm off, right? Duh, that's why I didn't go in the window in the first place. So I hop out. It's gone from night to day. I'm on a market street. 
and I'm walking quickly and I'm trying to keep a low profile because I know that the cops are looking for me now. And as I'm walking, a woman in secret agent fashion comes up just behind me here. She says, don't turn around. Don't turn around. I'm going to tell you something very important, but keep walking. And suddenly I have the urge to get some Subway, which I haven't eaten Subway in five years. So I'm walking, <laughs> I'm walking towards like a Subway. I'm walking towards a Subway. And she says this. She says, you are a man concerned with the past. You are a man concerned with yin and yang, earth and water. And then she says, as her voice turns into a robotic, uh, distorted version of what she was sounding like before, she says, what are memories? And then I woke up. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, okay, there's so much going on in that, but... I'm. I think a lot of listeners would agree. This is this is a, a very uh, commonly accepted uh, principle in dream studies that whenever language emerges and really is maintained through wakefulness yeah. with some integrity, that's incredibly significant because that doesn't really happen. You know, oftentimes that's what what really when people have that sense of just losing the dream it, it it's a language element they can't quite get that back something important was said and it no longer makes any sense but more often than not the whole the phrase just is gone the gone mm -hmm. and you're left maybe with a tonal sense and maybe a some sense of context but even that fades away very quickly so that's very significant and that's quite a uh an extended uh admonition and commentary from the depths of, of, of the dream time. I mean, what's your sense of that? I, I, well, I thought that it was, it was interesting because when I first went into the dream, I recognized where I was, but as I went deeper into it, it became less and less familiar. The cyberpunk city is one of my hangouts, right? Right. But that particular Market Street was not. And uh, when I woke up from the nap, I immediately uh, took out my phone to write down what I had just heard. Um, and it is very, I've been reading a lot of the Tao Te Ching and listening to Alan Watts. And uh, I thought of particular significance to you, I wanted to relate this dream to you as, cause you know, sometimes you don't have dreams for yourself, mm -hmm. uh, but I know you're working yes. on your, on your memory yeah. book. Uh, I know you're working on your memory book. So I wanted to perhaps say maybe there's something either in the Tao Te Ching or maybe Subway that might help you. Uh, <laughs> what are those two things? I, I certainly, uh, I think the former and the latter has introduced a whole level of, of <laughs> chemic resonance that, uh, I mean, there's a lot that, that that triggered in me. I, I think that one of the, the thoughts that I had is that I could imagine some of the people, um, you know, there's sort of the imaginary critics that we have in our mind that, that are sort of around me when I'm working on the book. I can imagine them saying, well, this is an example, David having a kind of dream because he's a writer 
and it is structured in certain ways. And that they would then say to me, because I'm aware that, that I'm structuring my notions of dream, relationship to consciousness, language, and memory because of that bias of, of being a language arts sort of person. Um, and I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think that, that, uh, that yes, you are a writer, but I, I see lots of strange divergences from that and lots of possibilities of that being a much more potential, um, not universal human access point, but a, a kind of, well, like an airport that many different people could pass through in architectural mm -hmm. terms. I think that's another interesting uh, architect thing to harken back to our earlier theme of a public space, an airport, you know, like a way station. Mm -hmm. Lots of people are passing through. Uh, I do something tickled me about subway and I don't know uh, why, because I there are many sort of food chain, you know, that, that you could have popped in there. Um, somehow that was just, I don't know, just that felt perfectly appropriate. It's like putting a pine needle on a scale, you right. know, just enough weight mm -hmm. to push, but not too much. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope that that's helpful. I found your response very helpful. And uh, I'm, if, if I get any more dream uh, messages, I'll be sure to relate them to you. But uh, I've gotten a real kick out of listening to the Tao Te Ching in Chinese. I found some good podcasts that are in, in Chinese and English. They'll read right. it in, in Chinese first and then English after that. And man, I am uh, just in love with the sound of the Chinese language. It's so comical, but beautiful at the same time. Male uh, or female voiceover? Male. It's been it's a male, it's a male voiceover. It's like that like it's it's so interesting to me, uh, uh sonically and aesthetically. It's funny, my uh my stepbrother, who is a mix of you know genius, uh psychopath, gangster, inventor, he was a lot of different things. But one of his funny habits that he picked up on for a while. Uh, because we were living in Oakland, but he he tuned into this San Francisco-based uh, Chinese station, Cantonese, mm -hmm. and he he would just listen to it. And I mean, sometimes it was funny that it, or it sounded funny to us, but more, I mean, it, he was really he used it to kind of deprocess, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, here is this. Uh, I mean, the last of the white Oakland gangsters who actually had that creative an idea you know i mean mm -hmm. he was he was in a, his own realm and i thought that was a really beautiful thing but that ties in exactly with what you're saying and i think that that is a great tip for listeners to if you want to deprogram your your thinking in language terms turn to foreign languages and to strange forms of music musically i recommend north african uh, music, Arabic music, and certainly classical North Indian. The, mm -hmm. the, the it, it will take you into another space. But I think listening to something uh, that's a, and with so many great things on Audible books now and stuff, that should be really available. And um, 
God, that time I, I was just, I wanted to hear some uh, Malaysian and I, I just wanted to hear it. And I, I, I wanted to hear a, a, a female voice. And then, and I, 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 I tuned into that. I, I think I was just listening to some news, you know, mm-hmm. but it's still, it was satisfying in a, in that psychological room sense. I think mm-hmm. that's a great idea. I think that's yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I listened, obviously I listened to a lot of Japanese because of my other podcasts, but uh, Chinese is so radically different. Korean is too. I can actually now, um, I can tell the difference between different East Asian people by facial feature. And I can definitely hear the different languages now. And I can say that five years ago, I don't know if I could have told a Japanese and a Korean person apart, uh, but they're very different. Very different. Oh often, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I oftentimes think uh, Japanese people in Korean, like they have a real hard time uh, learning almost as difficult as going from English to Japanese uh, is going from Korean to Japanese. So. Um, that made me, uh, I just wanted to know if you've listened to, there are many, many Japanese uh, musical artists that um, uh it's Maduri Takata. I don't through, know. Through the Looking Glass. It's yes, a, yes, 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 yes. I have yes, heard this. Yes. Yes. It's just absolute. I mean, I I don't know. I love everything. That that is just particularly uh it's it's just essential you, listening for me. Essential. You sent this to me, did you not? You sent me a YouTube video of, of a performance. I, might, of I very well might have because it's just yeah. it's so high on my uh uh, we've spoken about Pauline or Oliveros, but you know her. And it's, I, but I think through through the Looking Glass is just such a wonderful, uh, and very f- fully conceived album. You know, mm-hmm. it really is in that old school sense that that is very important to me because I, I like forty minutes to an hour of experience. You know, I really, I really do. Cool. Yeah. Did you have it? Did you have anything on the dream docket? Well, I really, I'm just, I'm really loving that resonance of of your dream, and uh, I, I, I had more of an observation that maybe would be a good thing, just a a little pebble to toss in the water because it's it's more of a question about a dream. Um, I have occasionally one of the the neurology thing I'm dealing with is a, is a particular kind of nerve twitch that happens sometimes when we sleep. And it's very different than what many people have little spasms. This is a very peculiar uh, thing, which is fairly recent. But I had a dream and there was an instant analogy, analog equation, almost like a headline and an image. Okay. And in the dream, I was just following some, I was confronted with a, a bare winter branch that was about to hit me in the face. Mm-hmm. And it was that instinct sort of thing. And the environment was quite beautiful. I was out for a, a walk, but this was a sudden thing that snapped me out of my reverie. And of course it snapped me out of my dream. And I thought, you know, that is a really good tight example of where an inner physical state, a nerve system state, then does it create the dream, the branch in the dream, in the landscape, mm-hmm. or 
could we, I mean, that's certainly, we have to accept that possibility. And we know there are examples of that. And that's often a trope in films and, and stories. Uh, but what if it worked the other way? Yeah. You know, right. what if it right. works the other way? And I think that one of the things that the message to you coming out of your dream is on that sort of, that membrane is very porous between the worlds, very porous. And you've been sort of counseled to be particularly attuned to that because that moment of, of energy transfer where the mm -hmm. dream becomes physical and the physical influences the dream. That's kind of been I, I, unintentionally, I think our theme, you know, for this episode. Yeah. yeah. No, it reminds me of a, one of my favorites. Uh, I, I'm not sure what book I got this from, but it was a book about animism. It might've been animism, just called animism. And the anthropologist who wrote it was talking to a shaman. <clears throat> and he said, so are, do, do rocks have sentience? And the shaman said, some of them do. And I love that answer. Some of them do. Yes. So when we're talking about the, does the neurological uh, uh, impulse cause the dream imagery or vice versa? I think it's both. I think it goes back and it's a two-way street that goes back and forth. And part of the fun is not knowing which one, <laughs> you know, at any given time. Yeah. And, and, and maybe just simply never being able to work out a systematic physics that yeah. would allow a level of prediction, you know, maybe that's just the, the you know, some rocks. Yeah. Are sentient and maybe they're not rocks. They're yeah. Yeah. It's like synchronicity. I had a great synchronicity this week. Um, I'm actually going to pull up the pictures that I took of it so that I don't, I don't get it wrong. But as you know, I have been engaged in uh, ancestor veneration, right? And, and communicating uh, with my dead ancestors and figuring out what their karmic debts might be and ways in which that I can relieve them. I'm very interested in the idea of merit as a way to absolve ancestors from their karmic debt. If you are going to say something nasty to someone on the road, but you don't do it, you just do a real quick mental, like that was for you, grandma. And it, it pays a little bit of, of their, of their bill. Right. So I'm getting into all this and Rios and I have a moment because my mother came to visit with my aunt, who's just a wild woman. You love her. She's a, a nut. She's crazy. She's always going, 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 going. She's not on stimulant. She's not on anything except for lots and lots of nicotine but she goes, right? So my aunt's got to get out of the house. And she says, let's go to, uh, you know, like we, we, we got to get out of here. We got to go to Goodwill. We go to Goodwill. And where do I wander? But to the, um, I wander to the, the book section. And there are all these books. There are Stephen King books. There's Janet Ivanovich. There's tons of self-help, rich dad, poor dad, whatever. But I see this book and I just want to kind of I took a picture of it to give you an example of how bizarre, how bizarrely huge this book is, right? 
So it's that blue tome there. In yeah, the dear me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So of course, I'm interested in that. It's written by a man named Groot Verdenboek. And it's called Nether- Netherlands Ingles. So it's a, it's a translation dictionary, right? Uh, and I open it up and the pages are Bible thin. There are thousands of pages in this book. But I open it up and I had to take a picture and I circled it on my phone. As you can see, I'll read it for you because it might yeah. be too difficult to read. But it's the translation of worship slash veneration of the dead. Isn't that crazy? Wow, that is of all wow. the things to see. You know, I'm with my family. I just went to the to the occult store to buy some hell money to pay off a little bit more karmic debt. I go to this Goodwill and I see this book, take it down, open it up. When I say thousands, I mean there's over 2,000 pages in that book. And that's the page that it opens to. And right at eye level, the veneration of the dead is right at eye level. But what's interesting about that uh, in terms of our larger discussion about synchronicity is that that, uh, that rhymes very directly, but very often it doesn't. And I think that that is meant to keep you on your toes. So they gave me this one, but my next, my next synchronicity is going to take a little bit of good faith and a little bit of uh, bending the more malleable bits of the signs to fit, right? Because it's supposed to it intentionally obscures itself, right? It can never be pinned down to a formula. And that's a that's that's not a bug, it's a feature. I think that's a good way to put it. And it's kind of the, the difference between, it shouldn't be, but it, it, it is in the conventional thing, the difference between an art and a science. Yeah. You know? I mean, science should have more art in it and, and just try to be less precise. Precision is a great thing to see. I'm not sure, you know, system is always a great thing, but I suppose the one implies the other. But to be open to that possibility of the uncertainty, you know, the Mm -hmm. possibility that, well, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, there's not going to be a rule, you know, but there's going to be a pattern, you know. Wouldn't that be cool if there's, we could just enjoy pattern without needing a rule, you know. Mm -hmm. Enjoying pattern without needing a rule. I think it's a good note to end it on. I, I do fun. too. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was, oh man, I, uh, I, I'm with, I'm in that villa. I, I really could see, and if I was good enough at drawing, I could, I could completely draw the village and the whole larger sort of geography. And I have a very good idea of the dragon. The dragon mm-hmm. would be harder, but I could really do the village and and how that looked and the people and, mm-hmm. and the problems. The dragon is suggestive, you know, and maybe maybe not but fully visualized. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I left this out. You just reminded me that my story had a coda attached to it. I was too obsessed with that stupid plan B joke ending to tell you the coda the dragon stops obviously it doesn't have a flame anymore so it stops burning things down and the coda of the story is that the the village can no longer prosper because the dragon was acting as a controlled burn for it so now they're plagued by forest fires every summer that was the coda to it 
I can't believe I left that off. That's a, that is uh, a a lovely resolution in fairy tale terms. I I prefer that to the punchline. The punchline was just sort of off in a different direction. That's the kind of punchline that suits and rounds off the story Mm -hmm. in a kind Mm -hmm. of, uh, in a fable sort of, you know, fairy tale sort of way. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad you brought that back up so I could get the listeners my, and you, my coda, uh, because I was really proud of that and I completely left it off. Oh, well, that's how imaginative challenges go. You get all excited and you <laughs> forget well, some things. <laughs> you know, you, you really rounded that up into a beautiful uh, Nietzschean fairy tale, you know, mm-hmm. because he said, be careful not to uh, evict destroy all your monsters because you might find that you've lost the the best part of yourself in the doing and i think you've you've done a lovely uh you know and and therefore the extended fairy tale of of like healing the community healing the kingdom the wounded the fisher king version of this is somehow resurrecting the dragon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. reigniting the fire mm-hmm I can see a whole religion developing from that in that village. And if you want to sign up for that religion, contact me. I'm starting a cult. And we can... <laughs> <laughs> He's our local biker messiah. That's right. All right. Thanks, All everybody. Right. Take care. Thank you.